Hello, and welcome to the Hunting Science Podcast, where we talk about the science of hunting. I'm your host, Mark Lindbergh. Our goal for this podcast is to educate listeners about the how and why things work the way they do in hunting in the outdoor world. The second installment of what we're calling Talking Bands is part of the Hunting Signs podcast in an attempt to show how we use banding information from waterfowl to, to learn things about those birds and hunters and hunting in general. And again, I think the connection is very obvious between the importance of banding, hunter participation in the process too of reporting bands and what we've learned. And we should have started recording a little earlier because we were just chatting loosely about what we we're going to talk about today. And, um, and we, we missed some really good information. So hopefully we can re recreate it here. I have four more people with me today, Dr. Mike Anderson, Dr. Jim LaFleur, Dr. Chris Nikolai and Dr. Ray Alasaskis. And, uh, I'll let them give a little more detailed introductions here in a moment, but we started talking to Ray um, about some of the work he's done with banded, well, not just snow geese, but uh, banded mallards too. I actually remember when Ray introduced this idea of using bands to estimate abundance to a scientific group, and it was met with some skepticism. And Jim was telling the less scientific uh, version of that. And Jim, maybe you could give us the background of how Ray came up with this idea, and then we could strike into Ray's story about how we use bands to estimate abundance. Sure. Um, I, I was saying earlier about about 15 years ago, Ray and I were hunting in Saskatchewan where we were uh, staying with a bunch of guys in a farmhouse. And uh, in the, during the course of a conversation one day, Ray was telling us that, wow, you know what, I think there's a lot more snow geese out there than people think. So I asked him, well, you know, what makes you think that? And he said that he had been uh, playing around with some band recovery data and, and uh, it just, you know, the estimation techniques that were available indicated that there were a lot more snow geese than what we thought based on survey data. So uh, he offered to explain it to us. It was very simple. He said, you know, and we just said, oh, you know, Ray's kind of known for some fairly complicated analytical techniques. So we just threw up our hands and no, don't bother. It's, you know, probably too, uh, too complex. But he, he proceeded to tell us in words how the analysis went. And it turned out to be so simple and so genius that uh, I've been fascinated by it ever since and talk it up every chance I get. I think it's a very use, useful uh, technique for banding data and estimation of abundance. I, my only concern here, Jim, is there was probably beer involved in that conversation, and I'm wondering how much that aided in terms of interpretation of what Ray said and whether we should encourage listeners and viewers to drink while they listen to Ray, or Ray, can they understand it sober? I, I'm oh, pretty well, sure I could have understood it drunk or sober, actually. That's how simple it was. Okay. Well, listen, I think uh, Leafler, Jim Leafler is... Uh, is, is being too gracious. Um, I mean, hold it. Give an I, I introduction to yourself. Tell us who you are, Ray. I know you've been making the rounds on the podcast and you're pretty famous, but give us <laughs> your resume and why we should listen to you. <laughs> oh, I don't know if anyone should listen to me, but uh, anyway, uh, I'm Ray Alasowskis. I'm with the Environment Canada. I've uh, been working with them for just over 30 years. I used to belong to CWS, but we got reorganized and 
but I'm still with Environment Canada and work with my colleagues as much as I ever did. And I guess early in my career, this whole idea of using bands, you know, this podcast about bands. I mean, I, I did not rely on banding information, you know, when I was doing my PhD work. It was more nutritional stuff, trying to understand how important nutrition is to snow geese. And I really thought that's what drove the populations. And to a certain extent, that's true. But it, it isn't just nutrition that leads to the higher production of, of young every year. It has to be enough that, you know, it has to match what's discounted by, you know, the number of adults that die. Sort of simple uh, balance equation, right? Uh, the number of young produced has to match what dies. Otherwise, the population declines. So I got into this banding more to understand survival aspects. But then as Jim was saying, you know, I was really concerned, not concerned, but focused on snow geese and Ross geese. And some of the counts that were provided just seemed so low compared to what we could easily see in the field in Saskatchewan during migration. And so I started playing around and uh, it's not a new idea. Uh, Jim was suggesting this is somehow my idea. It's not, it's an old idea. attributable to Fred Lincoln, you know, the, the famous Fred Lincoln who started the banding lab, right, that we all report our bands to and, and get the information from. Uh, and it's a simple concept. I mean, the concept is if, if you have a population of birds that's harvested, and so say you don't know what the population, how big it is, but say there's a, a million birds harvested from that population every year, like, for example, snow geese. Uh, if you... We get that information through the uh, the part survey and the harvest survey to know that there's a, a mil- sorry a million snow geese harvested in North America. Then we have the banding data that further informs that, because if you know you ban a thousand birds and say 50 of them get shot and reported and so on, then that's a harvest rate of five percent, right? So those are the two pieces of information you know. If you know that a million birds is 5% of the population, what's that? 20 million, right? It's it's a simple relationship. And uh, what I like about it is uh, it, it isn't just in the hands of biologists. We've got all these hunters providing a citizen science that, that's, that they've been doing since before it was cool to, to uh, be involved in citizen science. So... And again, this goes back to Fred Lincoln and some of the earlier pioneers. So anyway, I think there's a lot of potential and just sort of serendipitous, just a fluke that I kind of fell into it um, when it was already an established uh, uh, method of doing things, but hasn't been adopted. There's been a lot of way more emphasis on counting things, trying to count things. And this is the other reason I, I had trouble with accepting what was thought to be, you know, five or six million snow geese when it was clear that you could see more than that and it's just impossible to count so anyway i thought that there was a lot of potential and we've seen there's other applications not only for geese but ducks and basically any exploited population including fish and so on you can use the same reason to get it so rocky mentioned oh, previous sorry go rocky ahead mentioned, rocky mentioned in the previous episode that there was um uh, and estimates, and I think these are Lincoln estimates. He was referencing thirty-five to forty million snow geese. Is that is that the Lincoln estimate well, number? Well, uh, the, the estimate is for the ones. When I say twenty million, that's adults, right? 
Gotcha. In years when you have a high production, it can, you know, you can have zero production, it'll still be 20 million adults. But if you have one young produced for every adult, all of a sudden you're up to 40 million. Now, a lot of those young die off through migration and so on. But, uh, um, but yeah, it could be the, 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 the huge differences in production, at least in geese in the Arctic, as you well know, Mark, uh, can be boom and bust uh, depending on when snow melt is and so on. So it's conceivable that it's right at hatch or right at uh, before the birds fledge, you know, in the fall flight, you could have 40 million. A lot of them don't make it through migration, especially the young. Um, but what when we it's it's good to concentrate on the backbone of the population, which are the breeding adults that, you know, the engine that runs the population, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So you know this, right? But just for the listeners, those. Um, those Lincoln S Lincoln developed those estimators and, and estimators initially for uh, estimating the number of homeless um, in the population, which was an interesting first application. And, and you've been involved in this work too with mallards, as I recall. Um, I know Todd has probably been spearheading that, but you were involved with what kind of numbers based on Lincoln estimates from banning data are you getting for mallards? Uh, well, it isn't just me, Todd, and of course, Jim Leifler and Jim Sedinger and others, uh, other good colleagues of mine were involved in that work. Uh, Dave Otis, um, also a guy who's, who's published using these Lincoln estimates, um, almost at about the same time that I was sort of getting interested in it. But um, I can't remember. You'd have to read the paper with the exact differences. But Lincoln estimates always tend to provide... Uh, give you an idea that there's a lot more than what you think there is. And, and it kind of makes sense because anytime you try to count anything, how can you be everywhere the birds are or the animals are, you know, to, to try to count them all. So, I mean, you try and cheat and use a, a smarter way to do it. And that's estimation by sampling properly and, and, uh, and making your ideas, your inferences about how many there are that way. Um, but yeah, for example, uh, the the not just mallards, but any sort of a survey-based count. Uh, you know, you have a sampling frame, and you try and cover the, the entire species range. But we know in the case of uh, the spring, or the May surveys, let's call them the bee pops, and so on, um, the entire range is not covered. I mean, it's focused in where we think most of the birds are but it doesn't capture 100% that there's that survey coverage bias that exists. So I think, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln's estimator using band recoveries and harvest data, uh, you know, covers more of the range, the, you know, the, the scope of the bird's range. So yeah, it's, it's telling you that there's generally more birds in the water counted. And it kind of makes sense, you know, this whole idea of detection probability, um, to me anyway. So I find that appealing. One of the things that that's made more of a um, useful technique, I think, is the is the improvements that we made in the banded sample. You know, it was uh, not that long ago we weren't really banding geese in the Arctic, and when we were, it tended to be, you know, individual product or projects banding small numbers of birds. Whereas now we have institutional banding programs that are ongoing year after year where we're banding thousands of geese and getting good representative sampling from across the range. So those estimates are improved, I'd say, uh, because of improvements we've made in the banding 
improvements that have been made in band reporting, and of course, improvements in computing power and analysis techniques. Uh, you know, trying to do this with a pen and paper <laughs> or a calculator or something like that would have been much more difficult than what it is today. Yeah, so Jim, after you give a brief introduction of yourself, do you uh, tell us if what you remember the number of mallards, 25 million sticking in my mind. I don't know why, but, um, and uh, yeah, also just one little note on this or side note is, as most of you know, probably the U.S. Census is illegal not to have a count. You can't use a statistical sampling method to census the U.S. population. It's actually against the law. So it would be interesting, Ray, to think we might be using more progressive techniques to count or survey geese than, than humans, but um, that's a bit of a side. But Jim, what's your background? What's your resume? Uh, well, I'm currently working for the Canadian Wildlife Service. I've been here for 18 years. Uh, I'm the head of our waterfowl unit in the Prairie region. So the provinces of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Um, and before that, I spent 12 years in Northern Ontario working James Bay, Hudson Bay for the province of Ontario, mostly on geese. And I guess I would say I've spent most of my career um, interested in all waterfowl, but but mostly concentrating on geese. Um, when we all met, or most of us met probably back in the 80s uh, when we were all associated with Delta, uh, Delta Waterfowl, that is, uh, I was more interested in ducks. I, I kind of thought at the time that I would end up being a duck guy, but just the way things worked in the job market, the way things went, I ended up more in the goose world. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I met you in 1980. I met Jim in 1986, I want yeah. to say. Yeah, I yeah. waterfowl. Yeah, that was a long time ago, and then had to. Was fortunate enough to go up and join you at uh, at uh, Gamsky Island and work work uh, help you with that project. That was a neat, very neat experience and one of my uh, favorite northern areas to go visit. That was a, a fun trip. So what what have uh, what banning have you been most uh, involved with then, Jim? It's a bit of ducks and a bit of geese. And what stories are most interesting to you from that? Well, it's uh, you know most of my banding experience has been with geese, but um, I started um, banding ducks when I was in high school just as a volunteer tagging along. Uh, I couldn't believe that people actually got paid to do that. Um, I think I would have gladly done it for free, but. Um, yeah, I, I guess uh, when we were talking about banding stories, one of the ones that came to my mind was uh, a letter from a hunter that I received about 15 years ago. And the letter actually uh, described a banded mallard. Uh, this hunter who, who was 78 years old at the time had shot a mallard in Arkansas that was 14 years old. And his letter was handwritten. It's still on my bulletin board in the office. And he described his dismay at having shot this bird, uh, didn't realize at the time that mallards could even live that long. And he said, you know, he, he wished he'd rather had his uh, camera in his hand that day instead of a shotgun. But at the same time, he was still curious and he wondered whether this mallard maybe had set a record for longevity because he had no idea they could live so long. Um, and I'd never really thought about it much, but I, 
I kind of thought that a 14 year old mallard was pretty unusual. So, and the bird had been banded as an adult. So it was actually a minimum of 15 years old. So I asked one of my colleagues to extract all of the banding data he could get going back to 1970. Uh, Kevin Dufour was the guy who did this analysis. And he looked at over a million uh, records of banded mallards and found a little over 100,000 recoveries of mallards that occurred between 1970 and the year, I think, was 2006. And of all of those 100,000 plus recoveries, only 106 mallards had lived to be at least 14 years of age. So roughly one in a thousand. So we did, uh, we kind of did a full workup. We showed, uh, we made some graphs and we showed the age distribution of of, uh, banded mallards and and sent it to the gentleman who'd written a letter and, you know, thanked him for his report and and, uh, wished him well. But I thought that's just one simple example of the types of things you can learn um, from banding. Yeah, that's a really neat story. Yeah, we were just looking at longevity records on the last episode of this, and I was surprised to see mallards, and this is a, a, even rarer, but um, as old as 30 years old. Yeah. You think about some of these birds navigating fall and spring migration 30 times and yeah. um, living to tell about it, and it's no wonder, you know, there's not many birds that do that. I was actually surprised to see uh, I haven't looked at these for a little while, but greater white fronts, um, 35 years old. That was a, that's an impressive, it'd be neat if they can talk and tell us what they saw over that period of time. Yeah, there's probably some pretty tough white fronts out there if you were to shoot one of those and try to eat it. <laughs> yeah, probably so. Yeah, so I got distracted, or I distracted you, but how many mallards did you estimate from that Um I, I'm like Ray, I, you know, we write things well, down so we don't have to remember. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to young sure guys next time. Yeah. More old guys next time here. I think the estimate was somewhere around 25 million, uh, whereas we tend to think of mallard numbers in the, in the range of around 10 million. And from a lot of the comparisons we've done, you know, with ducks or geese, uh, a lot of the Lincoln estimates tend to come up with estimates that are uh, about double and sometimes more than double what we assume based on aerial survey data. So it's not it, not out of the realm that uh, the estimates are that high. And uh, I know that a lot of people, when Lincoln estimates fir- first came out, there were a lot of skeptics, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of biologists, uh, people very familiar with these birds were finding it very hard to believe that the numbers could be so high. And I, I recall doing a presentation somewhere, Ray and I put together a talk where we showed the data for uh, pheasants in South Dakota. Um, these surveys in South Dakota have been going on statewide for 50 plus years, maybe longer. And just in the state of South Dakota, their estimates for pheasants were, what were they, Ray, 15 million pheasants in the state of South Dakota? So yeah, we just provided- like that. Yeah. provided some other examples from other bird groups where, you know, to, to try and make these estimates seem a little more realistic or a little more believable because it actually took a bit of convincing um, to make people believe that the technique was actually legitimate. Yeah, you know, 25 million stuck in my mind because I, uh, I used it in a discussion, a local discussion. There's a, a well-meaning individual who decided about 15 years ago that 
he needed to save the mallards um, that wintered in Fairbanks in a warm water effluent. And uh, historically, there's been about 25 of them that braved that and made a living on who knows what. Um, but he started feeding them. And, uh, and he increased the number of wintering to about five or 600 and was, and still today feeds them and declares victory that he's saving the mallards. And I, and I was trying to be gentle about it, but I said, you know, at a North American population level, those 500 birds are only a very small fraction of the 25 million mallards. And I remember finally having a number I could uh, sink my teeth into and, and share and, um, he didn't care. Yeah, it, it didn't no. matter if there was 50 million mallards in North America. He was going to continue <laughs> to feed them. So, uh, yeah, yeah, those uh, that number of 25, you know, 25 million. I think that that's what the Lincoln estimate peaked at. And at the time, there was maybe 12 million mallards assumed from the the breeding population uh, counts and, and estimates. Um, so, but normally it's a it's you know it's less than that, but uh, normally, the Lincoln estimates are about twice as high as what people end up counting or estimating from the counts. Now, uh, and one of the interesting things, I think the historical context of, of the uh, the uh, faith in these counts, which is fine, is that, uh, you know, these, these things got instituted, I guess, in 55, the first beat pop was done, and it's been done every year since, except this year because of COVID. Um, but... Uh, there was a lot of interest in using uh, sort of uh, ex-military uh, guys, pilots. There's all these pilots out of work, and then there's, uh, especially in the U.S., and, and there was an opportunity to employ these guys uh, you know, productively, I guess, doing surveys using aircraft. Great idea to get to places where you can't get normally on, on the ground, no roads up in the boreal or wherever, uh, and cover lots of ground. So it became these aerial based surveys became a gold standard uh, and, uh, and they're great. Uh, and I should add though, these Lincoln estimates and the, and the uh, BPOP estimates are pretty highly correlated through time. It's just that the Lincoln ones are always a bit higher or sometimes much more higher, much higher, but they, there's telling you the same kind of general patterns in, in the, in, in what's going on over time. Um, so, you know, it's not like um, one's, you know, uh, discounting the value of the other. They're both telling you the same thing, although in a different manner. Yeah, and in defense, I think, yeah, a number of those surveys aren't intended to be a complete census. They're intended to be a, just a relative measure of abundance. So in defense, those, uh, those are doing their job in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. But it's, it's fascinating to me that the absolute number is probably twice as high as what we're surveying. And uh, so, so do you think the robustness of those Lincoln estimators is related to some combination of the proportion of a species that exists within a surveyed area and the distribution of banding sites for some of those species? There must be, there must be some who's, for whom the banding sample is really small and, and you see a lot of variation in how many of these birds are actually in a surveyed area. That must all in some way or another affect the likelihood that the estimator is, is, is a reasonable 
estimate of numbers out there. Yeah, well, one of the assumptions for using Lincoln is, you know, um, I don't know, in high school or early college, they, you know, they, they go through the example of, a, of trying to estimate how many peas are in a jar, right? And so yeah. you don't know, you're looking at it, you, you take out some number, some known samples, say 100, you, you color them a different color, this, you know, this akin to banding individual birds, you throw them back in, and the important thing is you got to shake that population up so that the chance of, right. of getting the percent mark doesn't matter how many times you do it, but you have a, so this this idea of uh, homogeneity and mixture uh, in the banded sample getting back in. I, I don't want to, as you know, Mike, uh, the, the concepts here, I don't want to get into too much in the weeds, but it's an important thing that, for example, for snow geese, you can or Arctic nesting geese that come down the flyway and then all become sort of one group of birds. So theoretically, you could just mark one part of the range, but if that bird from that part of the range that is marked mixed nicely and equally and homogeneously in a nice even mixture with all the other birds and you sample from that, then in theory, you can uh, get a lot of information uh, and a reasonably good, I think, estimate uh, of abundance. It just depends on the assumptions, I guess. No, that's good stuff. And just relative to this podcast, we couldn't learn that without hunters. Uh, years ago now, I was asked to give a talk, roughly speaking, at a bird conference about why we knew so much more about waterfowl than we did other birds we banned. And it, you know, it's pretty simple because um, we have hunters that tell us information about those banded birds. Yes, we as scientists collect information and recapture them or reobserve those with visible markers, but in the Lincoln Estimator and many of those other data points we get from the citizen scientist hunters, we couldn't do it without you. And it's, um, again, I, I've said this too much, don't target them, don't target the bands, that biases the information. But if you do get a banded bird or you're lucky enough to, report it please, because <laughs> That's important information for us that helps us understand these birds. Yeah, Mark, you touch on an interesting, important point too: is the the the, the reporting, the band reporting probability. Like you know, I mean, typically it used to be about maybe about a third of bands would get reported. You know, because it was a pain. You know, a hunter would shoot a bird, and then there was this little Avis thing on there, and you had to figure out you got to write to Avis and put it in the mail and then a few weeks later you might get your information back but now with the web and phones and it's just like the, the reporting rate has gone from you know 30 percent the band reporting rate has gone from about 30 percent i think it's over 80 now uh so that's you know a nice technological sort of development that that really helps because the higher that reporting rate is you know mark's done work in this area as well um the more precise your estimate will be not only for Lincoln, but also for things trying to understand how many, you know, what the survival rate is, for example. You get a better, more precise estimate with less uncertainty. So that's, I like that point you guys made. No, that's, that's good. Um, yeah, and it, it, you aged yourself there, right? Because you remember when we used to mail in our reports. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's a long time ago, right? <laughs> Oh, I read about it somewhere. Somebody wrote oh, it down. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> hey, Ray, um, 
we come back to you and I want you to think about this, but I know you and Jim too have had some banding adventures. I, that's a bit of a side, but um, you guys have done more helicopter based banding than probably anybody in this group. Um, Chris has done a fair amount too, but that hasn't been without some adventures. And I had a few with you, Ray, um, but I, it, it would be fun to share one of those maybe at the end, if we look back and that's not so sciencey, but it's, it's sexy and interesting. So if you could think, I could think of one, um, but I'll let you pick and you and Jim pick. I know he has some from Agamsky that are not trivial. So, well, if if you want, I, actually, it's one with you. I, I mean, I don't know uh, <laughs> if you you remember this, but we're banding white fronts. Remember in the Central Arctic, and that's uh, we went to one of these drives. You know, we get out and then. Uh, you know, we ban the birds and we put our stuff on, we fly off, but you go, hey, I lost my lip cell. You know, your lip balm for chapped lips, it was missing. And darn if the next year, like there's, we're talking a hundred thousand square kilometers and the chance we happen just to ban the same spot in the same location as the previous year. I go, look it down here. And then there's this little lip cell thing that was yours. <laughs> what are the odds <laughs> of finding that thing? It's unbelievable, but that's a true story. And you were involved. I was involved. I do remember this. I, I was thinking of the one where they um, they had an accidental release of a sling load at a at a high elevation, and uh, that was uh, no one was hurt, but um, there was some some equipment that was not happy after it dropped from I don't know a thousand feet um, at uh, 125 miles an hour or so. Do you remember that one? Yeah, well, they were actually transporting stuff from Carrick to Perry River, and and I think the pilot punched the punched the button by accident, and now there was a, there was a really heavy grinder for processing geese that was used, and we were supposed to bring it out, and yeah, I left the, like <laughs> left the giant crater in the the uh, ice that was still icy on some of the water there. Uh, like I think it was three feet deep, you know, it was like a, a mortar had landed in there. Yeah. So yeah. Right. That wasn't during banding, I guess, but I remember the pilot coming in and said, Houston, we have a problem. We were at the cabin and yep. he brought the gear up. And my memory is I had a can of shaving cream in my bag that was, I believe, underneath the grinder. And there was not a square inch of that bag that didn't have shaving cream <laughs> somewhere in it. It had exploded to the point of filling my bag and uh that was impressive. Yeah, I think he was at a thousand feet. And if you recall, they had actually dropped it and hit uh, what was remaining of the ice on a lake that was just in the center of the lake. And they were nervous about even going and trying to retrieve it because uh, they didn't know if the ice would support the helicopter. But um, yeah, yeah, there's another one too. But uh, I, I I do remember the engineer. We were sitting waiting for him in the cabin. The engineer comes in, he pokes his head, and he goes, "Houston, we have a problem." Just like yeah. you said. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. nobody was hurt. That's what we like to hear. So. Yeah. No, that was good, Jim. Well, I know you got some from uh, Gamsky. Let's come back to it. And uh, J Mike, I was going to go with you first because you have seniority, but we seem to be going backwards. So maybe. Like, hey, I'm but, enjoying it. This is fun. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, Chris, uh, would you mind introducing yourself? And I'm I'm very curious to hear what banding story you tell because. I think for your age, you've probably banded more than most. Rocky might have you beat. He told me 250,000 
birds he's been involved in the banding of. I think that's a pretty high number. So I, let's hear if you got that beat in terms of number of birds banded. No, I definitely don't have that one beat. But uh, yeah, I'm Chris. Uh, currently been working for 11 months as the waterfowl scientist for Delta Waterfowl, which has been pretty cool. Uh, before that, I worked for the federal government for about 15 years total. And uh, yeah, I got a long intertwined past with with all you guys and, you know, the prior uh, episode of this podcast, you know, working with Brant. So I'm going to stay away from all the Brant stories, assuming they've all been been eaten up already, which, you know, it's just part of dealing with those long-term data sets. You know, you get to know those birds really well. But yeah, for banding numbers of birds, I don't think I'm that close. You know, I was banding with Paul Link couple of weeks ago and dear lord he seems to know exactly how many times he's crimped a pair of pliers and it's like <laughs> how would you ever know that you know i know how many are on my banding permit and i can look at how many i banded with leaf floor one year and knowing there's three people banding you know i can kind of guess i did a third of them but yeah i mean it, it's probably over a hundred thousand counting everything, you know, especially if you can bring in recaptures, you know, luckily I'm, I've always been involved with projects with, with a lot of recaptures and, you know, some of them that, that beefs that number up a lot, but I think I've banded more species than everybody else. So that's where it's been fun. Uh, you know, I've gotten to, to band with a lot of folks and just with my, my prior job with the feds, I, I, I acquired a lot of, uh, annual leave and uh, a guy can only pull the trigger so many times and actually personally uh you know i'd rather go band birds these days than go shoot them so it's been really cool that uh so many people have you know opened invites to come see their project on baffin or iceland or down at the louisiana gulf coast so it's been pretty cool getting yeah leaf leaf is there and i banded my last goose so that was pretty cool and uh, yeah, it was two years ago, I finally banded a model duck. So as far as I know, the, the list was wrapped up. You'll have to tell the story, Chris, about Dewey the Blue Goose. Dewey the Blue Goose, huh? Should I save that one for now or later? <laughs> I, know, I know Mark's trying to move us along for some content here before we start uh, telling the fun stories. Eh? I don't know Dewey the Blue Goose. Fun stories are fine. It's It's... If science is fun, right? This is science. As so who 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 is that blue goose for, Jim? I uh, don't. It it didn't end up being for anyone we knew. Um, okay. I think but yeah, Ader, Jim had asked Ader me gave it to one of his hunters. Okay, so Jim asked me to carve him a goose decoy. I'm like, oh, you know, carve him a decoy. I'm like, okay, I'll do anything other than a gadwall, red-breasted merganser, or blue goose. And uh, he's like, well, I actually need a blue goose. He's like, oh, wait, criminy. It's one of those colors. I carve my own decoys and everything, you know, starting from cutting down the tree and planing out the boards and drawing a pattern and doing all that. So, yeah, we put together this blue goose. And I think he gave me 10 months warning. And I just kept kicking the can down the road. I carved it and kept sending pictures of it sitting on my shelf, acquiring more and more dust because I just couldn't mix that blue body color. And finally, you know, Jim, Jim uh, gives it to me. Got to have this done. You know, we're leaving. Okay. So 
get it all done. And yeah, we brought it on up to Baffin, which is really cool because, you know, Jim knows this story the best, but, uh, you know, famous explorer in the early twenties named Dewey Soper spent what, two or three years of his life looking for the blue goose nest. And, uh, sure enough, he found it down in the South end of what became the, the Dewey Soper migratory bird sanctuary. So yes, yeah, so we go down there flying along with Jim. We got Dewey, the blue goose in the helicopter. We got pictures of him with headsets on looking out the window at the terrain, you know, down where the blue goose river flows and, Yep, we landed. We we chucked him in the Blue Goose River and let him float for a little bit. I got pictures of that. And then we had a pen where, yeah, it was probably 95% blue geese, you know, just classic for what you'd expect of that spot. Put the decoy in there with all his buddies, little uh, Pinocchio decoy, you know, just wishing he could be a real goose. And uh, yeah, we had, I think, pictures all the way back from when he was a uh, a tree laying on the forest floor with chainsaws to, to floating in the blue goose river with his buddies. So, yeah. so that was pretty fun. What kind of wood was it? Sugar pine. Yeah. Oh. That, that blue goose was more well-traveled. Like Chris sent it to a decoy show. Where was that Sacramento and one best in class. <laughs> and then he, yeah. then he brought it up to Baffin in his suitcase. We toured it around the island in the helicopter, floated it in the river, put it in with a bunch of blue geese. And uh, I gave it to a friend of mine who's an outfitter. And uh, we gave, he eventually gave it to one of his clients. And uh, we, gave, we gave him the decoy, but we also gave him the whole history of the bird from the time it was a, a stump to, uh, to the whole tour of Baffin and everything else. <laughs> Okay, so maybe we could post a photo of that on the website when we post the, uh, the podcast. But um, I'm glad we went with that first, Chris, because maybe we, the listeners won't leave here thinking that that's we do that as, as our sign. So maybe we can go with the sign story. No, you got to have one. I think you're most, uh, I hear most of your stories about your uh, satellite marks geese now. I don't know if there's one in there you want to pull out or you initiated that wood duck research i'm sure you have some fascinating stories from that yeah no i mean yeah bands are one thing but uh you know i think my first goose radio well no i helped with brant implants back in 99 but otherwise again it was with jim lee floor and i've never glued stuff before either and i, I got a picture from that same trip i think where you know i'm the guy holding the the radio collar shut while the glue's drying and sure enough i get done and I couldn't peel my thumbs off. And luckily one <laughs> thumb was covered in goose poop and I could peel that off a little bit. I had, had a little bit of thin layer in there, but the other one, I still got a picture of it. I think I took over a millimeter, maybe three millimeters of my thumb skin was still attached to that, that goose collar, that trip. Oh, that was painful. I, I it was down to meet the rest of that banding trip. But, um, yeah, I've been lucky with uh, some of our colleagues that we've developed out in California from a former Delta student as well, scored a huge grant for many of us to put radios on geese. And, you know, bands are great. You know, Ray's talking about his stuff with Lincoln estimators, you know, stuff many of us have been interested in with uh, following individuals and looking how many eggs they lay for so many years and who they mate with and you know that in-depth stuff to just simple harvest regulations and you know the radios are a whole different beast you know those other ones typically give us a dot where we 
release the bird and then a dot where it gets harvested and hopefully reported. And we draw a straight line between there, you know, saying, and that's how we develop flyways. You know, they went from North Slope of Alaska and you got 40 birds that were all across the Southern coast. I mean, it doesn't really tell you a whole lot, but these radios are so cool. I mean, they got flexible solar panels that wrap around them now and, and their collar will float in the water. They weigh nothing because the battery weight's been so reduced and it's been really fun. And, and right now I can think of, five really cool snow goose radios that we've been talking about. Well, Thule geese this, this fall as well. Um, yeah, I like uh, snow goose go on the North Slope in the Prudhoe oil fields. And sure enough, I think it was 67 days later, it flew within 200 meters of my house where the pants and the boots and the pliers that I wore to fit him flew right over me uh, this Saturday. Uh, Matt Chenard and I from Delta, we were hunting with our kids, uh, chasing white fronts and cacklers. And I looked this morning and sure enough at 4.30 when we were just about ready to pick up our decoys, a bird I released three years ago on the Colville flew at the other end of the wheat field we were hunting on. And he took off Saturday morning north of the Battlefords because we've got this big freeze going on. And he didn't stop until yesterday morning right down by Yankton, South Dakota on the river. I mean, that bird hauled it and it, he flew right over the field that I was hunting when I let him go three years ago. And, you know, that, that stuff's pretty neat. Um, yeah. I, I think that's one thing that doesn't come from just banding data. And, and I classify radio mark birds as banded too, because of course they are, but those rates of movement have always intrigued me. I, you probably saw this, Chris, but uh, bar-tailed Godwoods, that um, do the nonstop flight from Alaska to New Zealand and uh, seven, eight days. And, uh, you know, that only comes from those radios. And so, yeah, the, I would think some of your radios show, even for biologists that have been at it for a while like yourself, wow, that's a, that's a big move. I mean, that's, that's fast, right? It sounds like much of this migration is, is eruptive in a sense they, they don't trickle down, at least in the fall. It's Yeah, we're getting all kinds of weird stuff. I was sharing with Ray, I think, a month ago, a bird that we banded on the North Slope is now in one year went all the way, changed and, and went to Baffin. Hmm. You know, it's like, okay, he just jumped across two population management plans that we have. Or you, know, you want another neat one that just happened a couple of weeks ago with the big fires out west? So, so this is a Thule goose, so a subspecies that, you know, Ray and Jim and I have argued in the field before about what the hell a Thule goose is, but big brown white front is what Ray describes them as. And, uh, but we had one, we, we had a number of them this year collared, mainly from USGS partners, but uh, we just submitted uh, a pretty big paper a couple weeks ago that, uh, yeah, these things are crazy with these uh, big fires that were out west this year and the massive smoke plumes they were putting out. But we we're having birds stopping. We had some birds sit on the ocean for up to eight days, you know, just sitting there drinking salt water, not eating anything, just delaying their their migration, fasting even more. Other birds uh, went to like Idaho, which a Thule use has never been described in Idaho before, landing on little tiny ephemeral streams and sagebrush country and sitting there for days until the smoke cleared. We also had a NOAA 
climatologist type be able to map real time the smoke plumes and match them to flight paths with birds. We had other birds that were migrating at 200 meters that within, I think, two and a half hours climbed 4,500 additional meters, went over the smoke plume, come down the backside and just plummet back down to 200 meters. And all three of these circumstances, sleep on the water, sit in the sagebrush, go over the plumes. They all went back to where they're supposed to be eventually, which is Summer Lake, Oregon. Yeah, neat stuff. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Chris, not only, you know, the you made the point of two points and what goes on in between. Well, uh, you know, the detailed information, like every whatever, 50, whatever you set your your intervals to 15 minutes, typically for the, the newer callers the, with the solar panels. But they also have like uh, accelerometers in them now, just like they have on phones. Right. And so you could, you know, you could talk about this more. I have no experience, just interested to hear about. How you can tell what the bird is doing at that, like it could be flying, it could be feeding, it could be sleeping. So that's another sort of technological neat thing, you know, these gizmos <laughs> that are getting uh, developed and, uh, and and so on. Uh, and also uh, with the light, uh, uh, some of the work you've done with the light, uh, uh, what's the word? Geolocators. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Having a brain, you know what? Uh, we've actually done some work using geolocators with uh, with Arctic terns and like birds that we marked. That's a, kind of a nice thing about working with geese in the Arctic that gives you opportunity to study, study other things that are out there. But some of these terns, uh, the geolocators were telling us from Carrick Lake, they flew down the Atlantic, went around the bottom side of Africa and ended up in the Indian Ocean before coming back. So, you know, the connectivity that you can uncover with... Uh, with kind of the work that Chris has really done a lot of uh, is, is pretty neat, you know, um, and it's relevant. It really opens the world up to uh, what's going on with these birds. Hey, Ray, we can put some information to the website, but why don't you tell people real quickly what a geolocator does? Because they're probably, most aren't going to be familiar with that. Well, you know what? I'm going to ask uh, Chris to do that because he's the expert, but... Uh, <laughs> Basically, it calculates the, the time of the amount of daylight that gets recorded, which varies by where the bird is latitudinally. Um, in a nutshell, you, Chris can add a lot of more detail than that to help people understand. Yeah, yeah. so basically it's just a device, a, a light meter and a memory chip and a battery is about all they are. So yeah, itty bitty things. Uh, here we go. Uh, behind my computer. Here we go. Here's one that got shot that I need to send in, so you can see how small it is. Um, so, for people just listening, how big is that? Yeah, it's about the size of five dimes stacked on top of each other. And you're attaching those to leg bands, or yeah, for us, uh, I make a leg band with my own phone number on it. Uh, like I joke with people, I wish I had a pocket of these bands back in my single days hitting the bars, you know, for all the ladies that like to collect bands with my personal phone number, eh? But um, yeah, they're pretty cool. It's really Too much information, Nicole. We might have to yeah, edit back in this day, part, Chris. I don't know if that's going to make it through the editing room or not. <laughs> oh, my, my wife's heard that story enough. But um, oh, okay. yeah, they're, they're really cool. Uh, they're lightweight. They only weigh about a gram. 
And uh, we learned a lot. You know, we, we thought a lot of these diving ducks like canvas packs and stuff are usually in this muddy windblown sago water. And, you know, they actually ended up uh, recording light levels very well, you know, throughout the annual cycle. But yeah, it's basically just like uh, recording how bright it gets during the day. You know, it's dark at sunrise, goes up, peaks at uh, middle of the day, noon. And then it gets dark again at the end of the day. And it the models we were using record the brightest level recorded every five minutes. So you can build these curves and they get noisy. You know, if they do have a bunch of mud on it, it goes dark. If they put their, if they lay on their leg during incubation, like a hen, you can actually, it goes dark. Well, wood duck goes into a cavity. It goes dark. Uh, it gets cloudy. It goes dark. So it gets noisy. So as Ray mentioned, um, you know, it, it's weird data, but with modeling, we can use all these inform. We can lump multiple days, assuming they don't move too much, or being able to model a little bit. But subsequent days can help inform and make these maps stronger. And you know, I'm I'm a big believer with these geolocators for these large scale movements. I think we're getting movement maps almost as good as PTT tags. You know, satellite tags from. 10, 15 years ago for a much reduced price. Yeah. And that's uh, pretty neat. Actually, this weekend, I got a call from a hunter with one of my old canvas packs from 2017, Utah, um, called the number that was on the band, my personal personal cell phone number right here. And um, yeah, unfortunately, the geolocator had fallen off already or got shot off. The zip tie was still there, but uh you know, another really neat, cheap, light technology thing, again, based on complete citizen science effort to uh, call call my number. I've learned, uh, you know, I, I made all these bands and inserted the zip ties. I can make a dummy one. I got dummy ones sitting in my shop at home and uh, get them to the guys with a paid padded box to send it back to me and Everyone sent them back to me. It's been awesome, folks. You you treat the hunters right and share information, and it's an awesome partnership. I wish every wildlife biologist took took many more efforts to communicate with the hunters. I know everyone in this group does. Yeah, it's an essential partnership. I you said it well, and. Uh... Yeah, this this technology. I must admit, I haven't kept up with it. It's interesting to hear where this is going. I'm, I must admit, I'm somewhat mixed about it because I certainly see the value in it. Don't get me wrong, but it's it has the risk of taking us out of the field <laughs> a bit more than I'm, I'm ready to do yet. And uh, anyways, that's that's a small selfish side of it, but. Um, Someone's still got to catch them. We don't have little robots out there yet that can yeah. crawl up their leg and attach them to their skin or go down their throat yet. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, there are I, some interesting applications that uh, I mean, one of our biologists, Frank Baldwin, is putting them on three different populations of white cheek geese. Uh, we put some on Baffin Island cacklers, some on Canada geese at Churchill, Manitoba, and some on uh, temperate nesting geese in Winnipeg. And what Frank was interested in was finding out when these three different groups of birds return to the province of Manitoba in spring. And there's, there's a, a, a progression. The big geese come back first, sometimes February, uh, March. 
and then the geese from Churchill follow those, uh, and all, and then the smaller geese from the Arctic follow uh, after that. And uh, the reason he's interested in this is that uh, temperate nesting geese around Winnipeg are considered overabundant. So uh, we wanted to establish a spring season to try and increase the harvest rate on those birds, but without impacting birds from other populations. So it was important for us to be able to identify a time period in the spring when only those local geese from southern Manitoba were available to be harvested and the geolocators turned out to be a very useful tool for that particular study. Yeah, neat stuff. I, my brief time, I worked for Ducks Unlimited. I was there in the late 90s that I got approached by a group of people who had developed um, oh, really small monitoring devices and pacemakers and they they were a company that made sensors for planes too that telemetered wirelessly to the cockpit and told them information on wind speed and temperature and so forth. And they, they had made a bunch of money and they were interested in trying to contribute to conservation efforts. They approached us about, um, at the time it was sort of hit tag technology or trans technology, but they wanted to link it to what was then developing as a, a network of cell towers. And um, they called me at one point in their development research phase and said, Mark, if we came up with a transmitter that could be detected by the cell tower network um, and cost $5 and could be inserted subcutaneously, how many of these would we sell? And uh, long story short, it never played out, but I don't think we're far from that. I mean, that was 20 years ago and these guys were thinking that way because they had come from an industry that that was just, that was real easy um, to think about. But um, yeah, it's exciting to think about what's next. So any of you guys, any of you guys ever have the experience working with uh, telemetry where you got a transmitter on a bird and, you know, invariably some of these guys get shot and, you know, the bird gets taken to the garage and the signal's coming from Buddy's uh, driveway or garage <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, after it's been harvested. It's kind of fun. Now, there is one of Paul Link's uh, white fronts. He sent me a picture, a map with it in a house in Point Lay in northwest Alaska. And he's like, hey, can you help him with... A, buddy, a mutual buddy of all of ours that lives in Barrow right now, he helped us. And I think within five hours, it was in a box going back to Louisiana happily by a, a spring subsistence hunter. The whole bird or just the transmitter? Yeah, no, the whole bird was in soup, I'd imagine. But uh, yeah, the, the <laughs> transmitter and, you know, got put on another bird. That's what's really cool. With, uh, the geolocators you know, if battery life is still good, I mean, there's some of them, you know, I'd deploy the week before hunting season on wood ducks and they'd get shot the first week. And it was an awesome opportunity where, you know, you talk to the hunter and multiple times we had the hunters show up with their gear. It's like, Hey, we're going to catch wood ducks tomorrow morning and uh, bring your geolocator. We'll download that data. And then they helped us. And, you know, we let them let the bird go, putting it back out. You know, now you're getting these solar radios, you know, either backpacks or collars where they're fine. You just make sure they charge back up, which they do in hours. 
and you can put it on another bird. I think some of these backpacks right now, these GSMs, these cell phone ones, I think Mike Casaza has some that have been on like their sixth bird now and several of these mm-hmm. geese, you just slap it on another bird. They're ready to go. You don't have to put a magnet on them. You just let them sit in the sun and recharge and they're good to go again. Mm. Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, for sure. I notice you guys may have noticed we just lost Jim LaFleur. Hopefully he can join us again. The, uh, the hazards of doing zoom conferencing, but uh, he came back. So we're, we kind of overwhelmed listeners with goose stories. Um, and, and we want to give Mike a chance cause he's got some really neat canvas backstories. He got a chance to tell one of those in a previous episode, but, um, yeah, and just to introduce Mike, I, I think I mentioned this already, but this is the uh, second, third banning operation I got involved with early in my career. Nineteen, that was nineteen eighty six with Mike and his work on canvasbacks in the Canadian prairies. And uh, like I said, he already shared one story in a previous episode, but I know he's got many more. So I was going to turn it over to you, Mike. Well, thanks. I'm going to, I'm going to dial us back about 50 years and, uh, and, and go low tech here. Um, I mean, we've been talking about a lot of the really cool ways that banding data help inform uh, management decisions and, and help us make progress scientifically. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a story about a duck, uh, a duck and some things we were able to learn from the application of a very simple thing called a called a nasal saddle or a, a bill marker. Um, so going back to the late 1960s, a couple of things happened that really helped, um, helped improve our understanding of, of breeding ducks. One was advances in in behavioral ecology and, and evolutionary theory that focused our attention on individuals um, and, and on what individuals did through their lifetimes that would affect their reproductive success and, and, and so on. And so we became much more, we now that kind of the whole field of waterfowl biology became a lot more interested in what individual birds were doing as well as what population phenomena uh, there were. Um, and then people figured out some ways to mark birds individually in ways that allowed you to follow them without necessarily recapturing them. So things like a, a goose collar or a, a, a bill marker on a, on, a, on a duck. And so I'd done a little bit of work with, with color mark mallards in the, in the early 70s, but about starting in, a, in the 1970, uh, three, um, three or four, I, I started working on a project that, that kept me marking and working with individual canvas specs for, for, uh, quite some time. And, and I'll tell you a story about a duck that I followed early on that taught us a lot of things about canvas specs that turned out to be kind of generally true. Our study area was in pothole country near the little town of Minidosa in southwestern Manitoba. It's typical pothole country with, with uh, farmland and potholes sort of interspersed. And the star of the show is a bird we know as JX. Um, 
for the for the marker on her build, an orange saddle with black letters JX. Um, we caught her when she was uh, a duckling near flying on a big bulrush pond um, and were able to follow her uh, through 1979. And she taught us a lot about breeding canvasbacks. Um, I know Mark has got a, a little map of her home range, the area that she, she traveled over uh, that'll be available to people who want to have a look at it on the, on the podcast. But anyway, she came back to Manitoba as a yearling in 1975. She was paired. She spent most of her time feeding and moving around an area that was about a square mile in size. Um, and she, she tried to nest eventually late in the season in a thin, thin strip of cover along a pond where she fed a lot. Um, but that nest was destroyed by a predator before she got well into incubation. So yearling bird did try to breed, but it was, but it was late in the season and she didn't make it. 1976, she comes back, conditions are good. And she goes back to a bunch of the areas she fed it in 1975. And it turns out a lot of those are beds of sago pondweed, which is a perennial plant. There's a little tuber, a little potato-like thing the canvasbacks really uh, like to eat, uh, along with some invertebrates and so on when they're, when they're getting ready to nest. So she nested earlier that year in 76, a little cattail pond, didn't make it. Um, and then about two weeks later, she re-nested on another little cattail pond back pretty close to where we caught her as a duckling. And that nest hatched. It was her first successful breeding attempt. She took the ducklings and went into the pond where we caught her uh, as a duckling two years earlier. And that's where she, where she raised them. 1977, she comes back. Well, it's dry. And all these little cattail ponds that she'd learned are a good thing to nest in were dry. Um, See, so used much of that same old home range, although it, she, she about doubled it. She, she, she went over a much larger home range area. Uh, I think doing two things, looking for other sources of food, but looking for other places to nest um, because she was still using some of the old feeding sites. Anyway, she eventually built the nest on one of the big ponds that she liked to feed on, but thin cover, not much, not much protection. And her nest was eaten by a predator, probably a raccoon. And she lost her eggs uh, fairly early in the process. 1978 comes back again. Wetlands are, are better. Um, and she's back in her old haunts. That big breeding rage she looked at in 77 kind of shrunk back to the square mile that she was using in 74, 5, 6. And, uh, and she ends up nesting in a little cattail pond again, but she's wiped out by redheads, parasitic redheads, just dumping all kinds of eggs in her nest and she abandoned it. She moves about 150 yards to another little cattail pond, hatches that brood. They go into a big wetland and within a couple of weeks, she's back to the wetland that she grew up in herself in 1974. So you get the idea of a bird that's that's really pretty locked into using the same area and learning and 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 uh, and taking advantage of that over a period of time. We caught her brood that year in 1978, and 
1979, she's back again. But but so is one of the ducklings from 1978, That one of her ducklings from 1978. Um, her name was F1, and that, I know, you know, genetically. But anyway, F1 <laughs> was also paired. Um, and F1 wanted to hang around with mom. She still recognized mom, I'm sure of that. And she was following mom and, and moving around, feeding with mom. The two drakes weren't very happy about this. Like, they were pretty confused, it, it seemed. I'm anthropomorphizing, I know, but two drakes who, who were pretty much, uh, you know, weirded out a little bit by this behavior of these two hens that seemed to kind of know each other. Anyway, she kept um, following and feeding uh, along with her mom on multiple ponds over the course of the spring. And we did actually collect some data to show that, that JX was tolerating her presence uh, in a non-random way, more than she tolerated the presence of other hens with her. Time goes on, and F1, who's the yearling now, nests late, but she tries to nest in the same pond that her mom first tried to nest in back in 1975. She doesn't make it. Mom goes back to the little cattail pond that she nested on when she hatched F1 in 1978, and unfortunately, partway through incubation, she's killed, probably by a mink. And that's the end of our story with or our time with with JX. But 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 she taught us a lot of things. She taught us that, you know, uh, there, in pothole habitat, feeding ponds are something the birds go back to year after year after year and, and take advantage of their knowledge of the of the system. Um, in a way that we suspect helps them be pretty efficient. Nesting ponds, on the other hand, vary dramatically from year to year, depending on how high or low the water is. And so if you're going to provide nesting habitat in a place like that for breeding diving ducks, it's really important to protect the whole suite of wetland types because good nesting wetlands in one year are not going to be the same as another year and, and, and so forth. So that diversity of, of things is important. Find out canvas specs mostly, not always, but mostly try to breed as yearling birds. But their chances of being successful get better and better and better as they get older. Um, and interestingly, some of these traditions about habitat um, seem to be passed down from mother to daughter uh, through the generations, even though, you know, they separate on fall migration, unlike geese and swans where we know the families stay together for a longer period of time, um, you'd still do see some interaction between, between generations in birds when they come back um, to the breeding grounds when the young are, are now breeding themselves. And, and so, you know, um, these are all things that we were able to, to learn differently than if we didn't have these little color markers on the birds. So we, we knew that this was the same bird year after year and that this bird was related to this bird and so on. Um, and that, so, you know, unlike banding where we're learning about big process stuff at large scales, these individual color markers on birds allowed us to understand a lot more about the breeding biology of the birds than we would have had we not had that ability to to relate to individual birds over a period of years. I think I'll leave yeah, it with that. 
Oh, and you were one of the first of, to recognize the value of that individual information that I, I think we've only started to know how to translate into management action um, and still don't quite know how to do it. But that's you're to be commended for, for uh, uh, recognizing that early on. Those individual stories are not only fun, but they're pretty interesting stories from the population standpoint. They're very interesting stories. Well, it was fun to do it. Um, you know, it, it was always fun to get back on the study area in the spring and, you know, see who's back. Um, who else besides me made it back <laughs> for the following spring, right? And, uh, and to build up a, a suite of those kinds of, of stories over time uh, really does start to really does start to allow some insights that you wouldn't necessarily get if uh, you know, every bird out there was just some anonymous bird. Yeah, it must be really gratifying, Mike, to see those patterns emerge, you know, not just for banning from, you know, for survival or movement stuff, but on the breeding biology end of things, too. That's That must be cool. Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, it, it takes a, you know, there's always a trade-off. Um, if you're, if you want to work with large samples of birds, uh, which you need to do to, to, to address a lot of population questions, that takes you in one direction. If you want to compile information on individual ducks like this, um, you really have to be working with, you know, like dozens of birds, not thousands of birds, because it just, it's just too intensive, right? You got to spend too much time um, watching them and following them around and, and doing all that. Um, part of what's so exciting about things like, uh, you know, the, the, the geolocator work or the work that, that John Edies was telling you about earlier on, on the wood ducks is we now have some ways of, of, with technology of acquiring a lot of this, you know, here's what individuals are doing kind of things without having to put in thousands of hours in the field with a, spotting scope just watching the birds which is basically what we were doing in the 1970s well that was pretty fun though <laughs> well it was great fun i mean I, sure but you know it's in terms of <laughs> in terms of efficiency of data gathering it sure would have been nice to have had some of those tricks in our toolbox back then too yeah I just, i'm still intrigued by when we're going to be able to use this individual information in, in a higher level in management. I'm still um, intrigued by this possibility of targeting segments of the population that are less productive members of the population, or if you're trying to reduce numbers by targeting, you know, more productive members, like maybe for snow geese, it's, um, you know, that individual information and the snow goose story is an easy one to tell because if we could harvest as many adults as we do young there, we would have some, some, hope of reducing numbers like we're trying to do and that, that individual bird information if we could continue to exploit that in some way uh, that would be fascinating to know I mean most waterfowl don't have outward expressions of their quality like say loose antlers you know we can regulate based on size of antlers for animals that have those but we don't know we can't look at a duck and say that's a good bird or a bad bird in terms of production without this intensive data and it, right. it would be fascinating if we get to that level though. 
Yeah, at least with snow geese, you can, you've got some hope of a guy in the field being able to identify a young bird versus an old bird. But that's, well, anyway, that's helpful in a few cases. Well, one little side here, Mike, I'm, I think the canvasbacks appreciate the respect that you didn't use you as a second character in their code, that uh, young bird would have been F you had you used that instead of F1. <laughs> that was random, right? <laughs> I was just thinking. Only one F1. There was an F2 and an F3 and an F4, oh, but. But no F you. Good. No F you. <laughs> All right. Does anybody have a wrap-up story here that was uh that's great and it doesn't have to have anything to do with science at all something from the gamsky polar bear story comes to mind to me but it might not have been during banning but um nonetheless exciting i uh, can't think of any i mean i think about polar bears and all that but we didn't have any you know, real close calls. I, I think more about fog. Oh, hold it here. Hold it here a minute. I know the story from one that came in a tent at night. You couldn't, you didn't oh, have your glasses on. Yeah, that wasn't during banding, though. That was in May. Oh, it, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my, that was my first experience with a polar bear on shore in May. Uh, oh, it was fairly okay. early in my career, 1993. And uh, I had been told that polar bears don't come ashore until July. And uh, my technician at the time said that earlier that day, they'd come across a really smoking hot polar bear track. And I said, ah, I don't know, it's probably from last year. You know, it was melting. They said, well, there was water trickling from the, the paw print into the claw mark on the track. That's how fresh it was. Anyway, I pretty much discounted the whole story until the last day of our trip. Uh, we had a big party, as it was customary, the night before we left. And uh, everybody stayed up late and had a few drinks. And the next morning, a polar bear walked into one of our tents. Uh, a young lady was in there by herself. She was actually laying on a bunk awake with her head by the door of the tent. And the polar bear stuck his head in the tent up to about the shoulders and was within inches of her face. And she screamed and scared the hell out of the bear which ran over towards my tent and then everybody in camp got up and started yelling and I eventually got up and walked out of the tent without my glasses and didn't really remember there being a snow drift in front of my tent so I went back <laughs> in got my glasses and there was a polar bear standing there and uh, yeah we eventually had to call in a uh Ontario Provincial Police Twin Otter came and picked us all up. And later that day, the bear went through our camp and destroyed the whole thing. That was the, the first the first of uh, two events that year where our camp was completely destroyed by bears. And um, I remember my boss telling me at the time that if we wanted to continue to work on geese at Agamaski Island, we'd have to secure the camp. And uh, the next spring, we went to Churchill and examined the polar bear fences up there at Rocky's camp and at Don Roosh's camp and came back and built a massive uh, enclosure around our camp to make sure that the bears couldn't get at us anymore. And uh, that camp is still there today and they, the enclosure is still standing and has been expanded and just one of the, one of the hazards of working in that environment. Yeah, that's interesting, Jim. We, we, uh, in the central Arctic, south of Queen Maud Gulf, 
the ice isn't conducive to, you know, supporting lots of polar bears. It's, I guess there's not enough rough ice, but we do have grizzly bears, barren ground grizzly. And, uh, uh, you know, you see them and uh, on the ground and so on. But uh, the, the biggest pain in the neck is when you get there in the spring to start field work and there's still snow everywhere. And then you see a hole in the side of the building. <laughs> You're going, oh, no. And then this, you go in the building and... You know, there's like bear shit and and uh, three feet of snow and and uh, uh, yeah. So I mean, there's certain things you got to do in bear country, take precautions and so on. But uh, I got another one, story yeah. though. It has nothing. I'm sorry. We, I was just going to say we did have one that wrecked our helicopter during banding one year. Um, that was at night, and that was before we had our. Uh, we had to eventually build an electrified compound so that we could land the helicopters inside it um, with a high voltage fence to keep the bears from trashing the helicopter. But Yeah. Well, the story I was going to mention has nothing to do with bears, but does involve a helicopter. And I think it was 91. Our helicopter crashed while we were. It's not funny, but I mean, it's only funny because nobody was seriously hurt. But, uh, yeah, some of the risks uh, working up there, not only, uh, you know, using aircraft, but you're in the middle of nowhere, basically. And if this happens, you've got to go into survival mode. And so, you know, I could go on and on with these stories, but uh, there's some of the things we do people don't, not appreciate, but aren't aware of some of the risks involved. And and uh, so we're kind of lucky that we've been able to do this for as long as we have and, and uh it's a great living. No, and I, you know, I, you, we've all had fun doing this and probably wouldn't choose anything different, but I hope people realize that, you know, there's some very dedicated people working on this and, uh, and I hope hunters continue to hold up their end of the bargain too. And being partners in this effort, as Chris put it, it's, I wanted to finish with a bit of a sad story, but one that speaks to that a little bit is um, Jim will remember this. He, in 1998, I want to say, um, and I can tell the story now because you don't work for them anymore, but was able to find a way to free up a helicopter from the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources for Rich Malecki and I to uh, go around the eastern Canadian Arctic banning geese. And uh, there was a crew of four of us, myself, Rich, a pilot, and uh, a crew leader, and um, and the details aren't that important, but um, but it was it was an indication of how rich, um, even at that time, was uh, so dedicated to what he did. It did when we banded geese with a crew of essentially three people because it was the pilot really couldn't participate, and the engineer was a necessary person, but um, he, he wasn't you know um, trained in how to band and stuff and. Uh, Rich was known for his uh, his abilities in the Arctic in the past. He got the nickname Iron Man Malecki because it was a plane crash, I believe, and he walked out of. And the pilot he was with um, didn't have proper boots, and Rich ended up taking his boots off and giving them to him and walked out in bare feet quite a distance. I don't remember exactly who it was. Swam a river along the way. Anyways, it, we got fun stories about banning. My point here is that... Uh, there's some people that are, many of these biologists and these four here have dedicated 
much of their life and even put it at risk at times to get this information. And I hope people keep that in mind. And like I said, it's fun, but um, it's important information and hope hunters continue to participate in the partnership of collecting it and this information the way they have. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that story. Uh, I, the One of our pilots that went up there and, and banded with you guys used to, uh, well, after he came back, he used to give us a hard time because we used four or five people to band geese, where, whereas Rich Malecki only needs two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He was pretty capable, and he pioneered that banding in Greenland, um, trying to yeah. inform us about the movements of those geese um, from Greenland to Atlantic Flyway. And, yeah, I, I don't think, again, people recognize um, – Again, there's a lot of fun, and none of us would probably do anything different, but all of us have dedicated a heck of a lot of time and even risk a ton to get this information, and, and uh, I hope folks keep that in mind. Come on, i got to finish on a cheerier note. Ray, I have one last story, I guess. I was flying out with you and the crew from Perry River on an otter on floats that had, um, I think it was the 11th one off the production line. And I ended up in a co-pilot seat that had wooden frames around the window. And we had a substantial load in it. And, um, and we were going out the river trying to get on step. He was having trouble bringing the plane on step. And he looked over at me. I had never been there before. And he said, Hey, do you know if there's any sandbars in this river? And uh, I was like, this is not a good feeling at all because we <laughs> slowly took flight and uh, we made it back. Um, yeah, that's the trouble with some of these rivers. That river was, uh, it's the color of chocolate milk. You can't, you can't see at all if there's any rocks or sandbars. So previous knowledge is essential. Yeah. That reminds me of my, my first year banding in Ontario, uh, one of the first lessons I learned was it's important to know who's on your banding crew. Um, the very first time I went banding, I invited uh, three guys up. Two of them were from the States. I hadn't, uh, hadn't actually met them before. <laughs> and, it, and we were banding with a jet ranger, which is a smaller helicopter than we typically use now. We usually are in a long ranger, uh, sometimes an A-star. But a jet ranger is fairly small. And we had a pilot and four guys, and I was going to be in the front seat with the pilot. That meant there were three guys in the back, and these guys were all huge guys. And we spent three weeks flying up and down the James Bay and Hudson Bay coast of Ontario, massively overloaded everywhere we went. But luckily, I was uh, young and naive, and I had no idea that we were overloaded and that this was dangerous. <laughs> and... Uh, I was flying with a guy named, his name was John Levesque. Uh, they called him Levesque from Quebec. And I really appreciated him that, that fall calling me up and saying, hey, next time you're in Timmins, we should get together for a coffee. And when he did that, uh, or we got together, he told me, he said, you know, everywhere we went, we were overloaded. We're breaking the law every single day we took off. He said, we're lucky we didn't crash. I, you know, I thought we were going to go into the trees a couple times up in Pewanek and trying to get out of the backyard at the park office. And I had no idea. 
I was naive. And, uh, and he didn't think to mention that to you at the time. <laughs> well, you know, he had a contract and they're trying to make money. And But he was good enough to tell me that we really ought to be using a bigger helicopter and yeah. we really needed to watch the weight. And that was, like I say, that was my very first year on the job. So some pretty valuable lessons uh, that, you know, thankfully weren't learned the hard way. But uh, yeah, that's to it. Yeah, the Jet Ranger work, we're the same too. Like in the early days, uh, it'd be just three banders and the pilot. And all, we're lucky because often the pilot, you know, he was interested in the work. And part of the reason he was up there because they liked camping and quote unquote the bush and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, fuel uh, fuel was always an issue, uh, you know, especially on those hot days. Uh, I'm not saying we're ever overgross, but uh, you have to make sure there's only so many pounds on, on board uh, with all the other junk we had for banding. You know, we used to have the net there and then our, my Inuk friend in the back, Jorgen, and then Doug Stern or, you know, other folks that have rotated through the cruise over the years. Uh, but, you know, we, we got her done. I still, I still have great memories. I don't band anymore, like Jim knows now. The, the, the banding at Central Arctic is part of the, pro, you know, the wider program that Jim's in charge of in the Canadian Arctic for banding geese. But, uh, I still remember, you know, uh, you know, I enjoy geese. I enjoy hunting them. I enjoy working with them. But uh, I'd be up there. It'd be 10 o'clock at night, only it looks like late afternoon in the Arctic summer. You know, beautiful evening. And you're banding, trying to get done so you go home and have some supper. But all that time, be thinking about, I'm going to be shooting these guys down in Saskatchewan. Then when I'm in Saskatchewan, I'm sitting there trying to shoot some birds, you know, get something to eat. I was thinking about finding them up in the Arctic. So there's this back and forth connection, which is I probably got to need to go talk to a shrink about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys are reminding yeah. me why it's so uh, so nice to work with ducks in pothole country. Yeah, exactly. Biggest threats are pied-billed grebes and beavers. Yep. And lightning. And lightning. Oh, my God, lightning. Well, and having... Hey Mark, you remember wading around in those sloughs with the metal poles and the nets, trying to trying to put canvas back <laughs> foods into a into a drive trap. Oh my you know, God! Lightning I, off I'm, in the distance. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm absolutely <laughs> terrified of lightning, and and prairies did not help my experience. I remember Bob Emery, who was quite bold, was uh, we were in the trucks one day and. And he's like, I think we could still trap. I'm like, no way. I'm, no way in hell I'm getting out of this truck. I'm safe. And he's leaning on the mirror of the truck and he got shocked through a, uh, a close by strike. And he lifted his arm off the mirror and said, well, maybe we should head back. It's like, hell yeah, I'm, head back. I'm, good. I'm, not, I'm not banded today. So, uh, yeah. I remember once, Mike, you know, this was in Minnedosa country. I was driving with Dave Ankney and Bobby Cox. And we're headed over there uh, from Delta. Yeah. Same thing, lightning. We're just this big prairie storm rolled in, and we're driving along. And this lightning hit, you know, one of the wooden poles just beside the yeah, road, yeah. kapow, and exploded it. I remember looking back at Bobby Cox, and he's our eyeball, just kind of, what the heck just happened? Anyway, survived that one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's adventures wherever you turn, I guess, when you're out and doing this kind of stuff but but yeah you look back on it and it's it was a lot of fun 
Yep. Hey, well, thanks, fellows. That was great. Um, we could end it officially here, but if you stay on for just a minute after, I'll, I'll uh, want to ask you one thing. Um, any last thoughts? Thanks for the opportunity, Mark. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, Good. pretty cool to talk with all you guys. Yeah, it's like being around the beer uh, container at the conference or something. <laughs> yep. You've been listening to the Hunting Science Podcast. To find show notes on this episode and to leave comments and continue the conversation, visit our website at community.uif.edu slash hunting science.